This morning, our scripture reading will be from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, and this is a pretty long passage, so get ready. Um, You can find this reading on page 820 of your Pew Bibles. Um, We're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, through chapter 9, verse 15. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the, same, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, He who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. I thank God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he is coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. And we are sending along with him the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more... He was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering, which we administer in order to honor the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift, for we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. In addition, we are sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous, and now even more so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and on honor, an honor to Christ. Therefore, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you, so that the churches can see it. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know your eagerness to help. And I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. 
But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, first, uh, I happened to look out the window for something, and I saw a blonde teenager coming to my door. And now, I don't have any idea who she is. She may have been the neighbor's daughter, but I so little see, I see the neighbor so rarely. I recognize him, but I don't recognize his kids. And the last time a blonde teenager came to the door, it was to raise money for some kind of, you know, soccer function. And I've got a son who plays soccer, and, and basically I said, you know, I'll buy one of your doodads if you buy one of my doodads, you know. But anyway, the point is, this blonde teenager I don't know came to my door and rang the doorbell. Happily, I saw her coming, so I just stayed where I was and ignored it. Then I got a piece of mail. Now, you know, like many of you, my wife and I support some of our missionaries and some of our people in vocational service. And, and uh, this piece of mail came from the headquarters, central headquarters, of one of the agencies where one of our staff serve, one of our missionaries serves, asking me to make an extra donation to headquarters. Now, I have a strong interest in supporting individuals. I'm not so wild about headquarters because, you know, actually headquarters already takes about 12 to 20% of what we give to individuals anyway. And then 
So what they did was they used the mailing list of people who had given to their staff to try and recruit another gift. So I thought, well, enough of that, and put that in the trash as well. So I'm not real wild about people coming up and trying to raise money, particularly if I don't know them, if I don't, I'm not committed to their ministry or to their work. You know, it, it's one of these sensitivities that we all feel, or most of us feel. Uh, surveys consistently demonstrate that one of the biggest complaints people have against churches is, or seekers, that seekers have against churches, non-believers have against churches is, they're always asking for money. We're quite sensitive to this kind of thing in our culture. But it's not just us. You notice this very long scripture reading. Whenever we preach through the biblical text, we take the text one section at a time, one thought at a time. And this thought happens to go on, the one thought happens to go on for one and a half chapters. Because Paul is trying to raise money from the Corinthians. And they're clearly resistant to the notion, as resistant as we are. And so he gives them seven, eight, nine, five, just so to make it manageable, I broke it down into seven reasons. But he gives them seven reasons why they should make a donation to this collection he's taking up. So we'll take a look as we go through each of the seven and say, how is this relevant to us today as we consider how to allot our charitable giving? So turn with me in the text to page 820, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Why should the Corinthians give? Now, what Paul is trying to do, actually, he's not raising money from the Corinthians for the Corinthian church. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and there's been a famine in the city of Jerusalem. And the gospel, remember, originally came from Jerusalem. It came from Jews to the Gentiles. Corinth is in Greece. So the gospel originally came from Jerusalem. Eventually it found its way to Greece and to Corinth. So they have a certain spiritual debt to Jerusalem. And now Jerusalem is facing famine. They're in great poverty. So Paul's traveling around, collecting money. And the Corinthians could easily argue, why should we give to them? We don't know them. So Paul gives seven reasons. Well, you could break it up a number of different ways. I broke it up into seven reasons why the Corinthians should give. First of all, chapter 8, beginning verse 1. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Macedonia was north of Greece. In in neighboring province, but just north of them. So the Corinthians would have known about, the Achaeans would have known about the Macedonians. In the midst of a very uh, severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own initiative. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. And so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, now in this whole section, 
Paul gives one reason, maybe in, in two parts, why the Corinthians should give generously to this collection. And the way he starts, I'm sorry, are we working with the pulpit mic? Okay. So this is the second mic we've gone through that isn't working, so maybe it's my voice that's not working. Anyway. Paul, actually, the way Paul starts, it's really important here. Because he doesn't start the way I started, and he doesn't start the way we consistently start. Well, how do we ever talk about this kind of thing? We always say, why we should. And, and Paul doesn't start here with why we should. He starts with how we can. Notice his focus on grace. There is a should component, but his focus begins with grace. And, and the NIV disguises some of this because it translates it differently. But take a look at verse 8.1. The grace. Why are the Macedonians so generous? Because of the grace God get, has given them. They, and verse 4. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege. No, no, no. They urgently pleaded with us, the Greek says, for the grace of sharing in this offering. And verse Six, we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this grace on your part. Verse 7, see that you also excel in, in this grace. Verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Five times in these few verses, Paul references grace. What's going on here? It's not yet here the idea, he'll get to it, but it's not yet here the idea that God was gracious to us, therefore we should be gracious to other people. The idea here is that grace is not something just that God just does for us. It's something he does in us. His point is that grace has transformed the Macedonians. Grace is transforming the Achaeans, the Corinthians. It's changing who they are from inside. It's changing their values. It's changing their priorities. It's making them into generous people. So he doesn't start with our obligation is to dig a little deeper. He starts with, look at what God has done in the lives of these people, these Macedonians. They were impoverished. And yet not only did they give, they begged for the opportunity to give. Why? Uh, not because they're good people, not, not because they felt guilty, but because God was at work in their lives. And when God comes into our lives, not only does he bring salvation, but he makes a change. He changes our hearts. He changes our desires. He changes our motivations. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. And, and see that you excel in this grace that God has given you, he's telling the Corinthians. And so they give, not out of obligation or out of guilt, but they give because God's been at work in their lives, changing them, so they have this heart. Years ago, when I was in seminary, I had a friend in the area who was really highly materialistic. All he ever wanted to do was get rich. And he didn't really have much of a heart for God at all. His parents were in vocational ministry, but he had resisted and turned away. Eventually, he converted. And the first place you saw his conversion was in this overturning of his values. Before, money had been his highest priority. Collecting money. And now, giving money away. 
became his highest value. This is the kind of thing that Paul's talking about that he saw in the Macedonians and he's seeing and encouraging in the Corinthians. That God transforms us. Now, let me talk a little bit about you for a little while. One of the truly remarkable things about this church is that, and I don't want to hex it, every year that I've been here, we've more than met met our budget. Now, we're careful how we spend money, but we don't try to have too ambitious a budget. But as best I recall, every year that I've been here, we've consistently, certainly on average, we've always met and exceeded our budget. Uh, We run a surplus. We don't call it a profit. We're not profit. We run a surplus. This is really remarkable. Not only that, but giving increases every year by anywhere between 2 and 20% from year to year. I just looked over the figures the last few years. Well, if I had thought about this, I would have assigned this job to our finance member of our finance committee, but he's been in China anyway, so I got, uh, the nice thing is we got Pastor David, who used to be an accountant, so he tracks all the figures and passes them to me. You know, this is remarkable. One of the biggest crunches that churches face for ministry around America is finances. We have an abundance. And not only that, but every year between 15 and 25 percent of our total giving goes to missions and ministry outside the church. You know, on average, about 20% of our giving goes outside the church. It's, it's the point of this text is not, oh, we need to become like the Macedonians who are generous because you know, we're like the Corinthians who are stingy. The point, at least at this, at this far, is really well done. But we don't have to pat ourselves on the back, but I can pat you on the back. So we thank God for the grace that he's shown in us. You know, it is not a natural tendency to spend less on ourselves and to give. And sometimes, even as Christians, it's a challenge. I find it challenging. I'm sure some of you do. And yet, this is a demonstration of the grace of God in our lives. That we want to do this. And that even when we're a little bit reluctant to do it, we still do it. So this is the first reason that Paul says the Corinthians should give is really because they can give, because God's at work in their lives. Uh, the second reason, look at uh, chapter 8, verses 10 to 12. Here is my judgment, Paul says, about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to give. Now finish the work. You know, you started it, now finish it. For if the willingness is there, look at verse 12. If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. The the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Notice the point here. Bill Gates has gotten a lot of praise over his generous giving and the setting up of the foundation. Warren Buffett poured money into that same foundation. And we can easily think, well, look, you know, I don't have that kind of money. Anything I give is kind of minute, not very significant. But the Corinthians were pleading poverty, and the Macedonians were certainly poor. They gave generously, but they didn't give a lot. But, but God says what he values. It's not the amount. What he values is, is the proportion of giving that we offer. 
Now, on the one hand, this is hugely significant. A great benefit to us. Because if we give a significant proportion, it doesn't matter if it's a small amount. It's the significance of the proportion that counts with God. Of course, on the other hand, this can be a challenge because a lot of us aren't real poor. And, you know, we, we, we work with the standard of tithing. Actually, tithing is really an ill-conceived standard. First of all, if you look in the Old Testament, they had multiple tithes. So scholars, Old Testament scholars calculate that on average, basically, they had to pay about, they gave about 23% of their income. That, that, by the time you add up all three tithes, it didn't come to 10%, it came to 23%. And in the New Testament, if you remember the story of the widow's might, it's not about percentage anymore that we give. It's now about percentage we hold back. So for us, what it really means is, you know, the, the challenge of being in America, even with an abundant income, the, the biggest challenge is this, is that there's always more money we could spend. You know, always a bigger house, always a nicer car, always a more expensive education we could get. And these are probably the, big, the three big ticket items for us. When you're young, a car, then house, and then education for your kids. Now, a certain level of this is really more or less essential. I don't want to imply that if we give 75% of our income, God is going to bail us out and send our kids to good schools and give us a nice, fancy home and a, and a fast car. You know, these are challenges. We do have to set aside funds for these things. We have to plan ahead. And yet, you know, we can do this stuff modestly. Any of these things we can do modestly or we can do extravagantly. So figure out what a modest standard is before you buy a car, before you buy a house, before you plan a college education. Figure out what a modest standard is and take that as the norm and then figure out what goes beyond that to extravagance, and, and take that level between modesty and extravagance and compare that with your giving and see how, what the proportion is. It's not like we should not send our kids to college so we can save money. It's not like we should live in one of these you know, famous 200-square-foot homes that are coming out now in, in order that we can use all that money to give away. I don't think God's calling us to that. But at least let's measure the affluence in our lives. Not the necessity, but let's measure the affluence in our lives compared to the proportion of our giving. God's expectations are reasonable. What he's looking at is not what we don't have. We're not millionaires. What he's looking at is what we do have. A third reason why the Corinthians should give comes out in chapter 8, verses 13 to 15. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed but there might be equality. Notice what the Corinthians are saying. You know, the Corinthians are saying it's hard. We're not affluent. We don't have a lot of money to give. And Paul says, well, what I do is I compare you with the Jerusalem church, which is in famine. Our desire is not that others might be relieved, that the people in Jerusalem might live fancy while you're hard-pressed, but there might be equality. Now, the Corinthians could easily look at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was about a thousand miles away as the crow flies. But, you know, my, uh, ancient transportation was really slow. A thousand miles, roughly three months' journey. So the Corinthians should say, well, maybe we need to care about the Macedonians. But Jerusalem's so far. 
How do we have responsibilities that far away? A thousand miles, three months journey. And yet Paul calls them to some kind of equality. Our desire is not that others might be relieved or you are hard-pressed, but that there might be some measure of equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. So Paul takes a look at the relative prosperity of the Corinthian church compared to the Jerusalem church. It says, this should motivate your giving because you're doing so well relatively. Now, this is a huge challenge for anybody that lives in America because by international standards, obviously, we're doing very, very well. And it's a challenge for another reason is that if all we ever do as first world nation is pump money into third world nations, there's a huge tendency for dependence to build up. And some of the nations that receive the most funds over the longest time are the most corrupt nations. All we're doing is feeding a corrupt system. So we have to be astute about how we give. But it reminds us that the comparison we make is not our affluence compared to the other people around us in America and we keep up with the Joneses. But the legitimate comparison to motivate our giving is what the average is around the world or the needy countries around the world. So we give because we have affluence compared to the rest of the world. Paul offers a fourth reason in chapter 8, verses 16 to 24. Thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm. Paul can't get to Corinth. He's sending Titus to Corinth to collect the money. We're sending him along with him, the brother who is praised by all the churches. So not only is Titus going, but somebody else is going along with Titus. Not only that, but in verse 19, what is... Uh, Sorry, verse 20, we want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. We're taking pain to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we're sending with them a third brother who's often proved us in many ways that are jealous. Paul is sending along three people to collect this. And he will also invite the Corinthians to add a fourth person to the party so they have their own rep with this gift going to Jerusalem. What's Paul's point here? Paul's saying, I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm not asking you to, to, to trust that, that I'll handle this money honestly. Trust, but verify. So Paul sends three people along so they can keep an eye on each other. And Paul invites the Corinthians to add somebody to the party so that he can keep an eye on the other three. So that it's really hard to be sneaky with this money. It's really hard to be corrupt. And it's perfectly legitimate for us today to do something similar. Excuse me. <laughs> Paul's point here, this fourth point, is that this gift, this giving, has proper oversight. Now, we have excellent mechanisms for determining that today. First, Charity Navigator, or any number of online resource bases like them. Before you give money, check out the agency with Charity Navigator or another, any other comparable organization like them. Charity Navigator measures financial health, measures transparency, and measures effectiveness, or is beginning to measure effectiveness. We can evaluate the quality of the organization that we're giving money to. Do that. 
Don't stop there. Uh, another thing I check from Charity Navigator will also tell you what the CEO's salary is because I got this thing. I don't mind if the CEO makes more money than I make. That's okay with me. I'm also in nonprofit work, but I got this thing. So one of the four-star charities, one of the four-star Christian charities, Navigator rates. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the four-star Christian charities, Navigator, the CEO makes $400,000. And it's only one of his two jobs. Between his two jobs, he makes $500,000 a year. Now, you know, the agency is great. But if I have a choice, and, and it's a good agency, you could give to it. It's four-star. But if I have a choice between giving to a four-star agency where the, where the CEO makes 100000 and a four-star where the CEO makes 500000 yeah, I think I'll do that. There's another famous Christian agency, also reasonably well-rated, I think three-star, where the retired founder, famous retired founder, still gets a salary, even though he's incapacitated. He still gets a six-figure salary. And his son's on the payroll and gets a six-figure salary. And his daughter's on the payroll and gets a six-figure salary. So uh, you can look for this stuff on Charity Navigator. Now, you know, I'm not saying it's unethical. It's just, well, anyway, generous into your own family. So, you know, check it out. You don't have to, just because they use the name Jesus, you don't have to trust it. Paul is saying, look, we've ensured that this gift has proper oversight. I'm not collecting the money for myself, it's for other people. And you can be sure it's going to get to them because you'll send reps and I'll send reps and we'll make sure together that the money gets to the people it's going to. The gift has proper oversight. Paul offers a fifth reason in chapter 9, 1 to 5. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people, for I know your eagerness to help. I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred them up. But now I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Paul's giving them a fifth reason. And maybe this is a little bit selfish, but it's still a legitimate reason. Paul says, look, you have a reputation. I've been boasting about you. You have a reputation. People think you're generous givers. You're going to show them that you are or that you're not. You know, and it's relevant to today for us. Because our generosity in the community especially can be a sign that we care not just about ourselves, but about other people around us. This can be a sign of the work of grace in the lives of Christians. It can be a sign of our own social consciousness. It can be a sign of our own integrity. Paul says, uphold your public image, he tells the Corinthians. And we can learn to do the same. A sixth reason Paul gives is in verses 6 to 11. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all you need, in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. So Paul, now notice what he's doing here. He's saying, look, things are tight in Corinth, but give generously because God will meet your needs. But look at how he uses this language. 
He uses financial terms, but he makes them all metaphorical. You will abound in... God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. Paul's not promising them that if they give $50,000 to the work of God, God's going to give them back $60,000. What Paul is promising them is that if they give $50,000, for example, to the work of God, they will abound in every good work through the grace of God. Take a look also at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of what? Not your wealth, but enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched, not financially, but in every way. What Paul is saying is this. As you give generously to the people of God, God will also bless you. Bless you spiritually, not necessarily monetarily. And finally, the seventh reason in chapter 9, verses 12 to 15. This service that you perform will not only supply the needs of the Lord's people, but overflows in many expressions of thanks to God. And here Paul comes back to where he started. The word thanks is the same as the word grace. Verse 14. Their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Paul ends on the same note that he started on. He comes back to the theme of grace and he says this, look, it's not really about your reputation. It's not really about our reputation. It's about God's reputation. And as we're generous as a community, in this community, then other people see our generosity and they know it's not from our human nature. They know it's by the grace of God. And so ultimately, what happens is they praise God for what he's done in us and through us. One final note I want to end on is, you know, to come back to the point where I started from, people have this objection that churches are always asking for money. We basically ask for money two or three times a year. One is the annual budget, the general fund. And then in the fall, we have a special offering for missions and for social concerns. Those are the two regular times we ask for money. The third time in a year, uh, sorry, the third time, occasionally, we have building fund, and we ask for that. The one thing we don't do, maybe every, maybe 20 or 25, 30 times a year, I get requests for special offerings, special appeals, solicitation. If ever you've made those or you're thinking about it, let me know that we don't honor those. But let me explain why. If God puts it on your heart, a special burden on your heart to give to a particular ministry, we encourage you to do that. We try to keep our requests modest so that you have surplus that you can give to outside agencies, outside ministries. But we don't honor ad hoc because, you know, God puts this request on your heart. It's a call to you from God to give. It's not a call from God to you to raise money from other people. It's a call to God, from God to you to give. And really what we're trying to do is avoid constant appeals for funds. So we want to encourage generosity. But we leave it up to you to figure out what do you really have a passion for? Where do you see that there's a financial need and you have a heart to meet it? And then ask God 
to direct you and to give you that heart that can celebrate these things together. Let's pray. Father, we look at communion and remember that, as Paul said, you were generous to us. We ask, Father, that you would work in our hearts continually. We thank you for the way you have worked. We ask that you might continue that work and deepen that work, that we might be generous to others as you've been generous to us. In Jesus' name, amen.